Let's pray to start our time together. Let's do that. Father, many people for many weeks and months have been asking for your presence here, so we're praying not so much to ask for it, but to thank you for it already and um, say that we trust you to do that, that you have given us the Holy Spirit, Jesus. You sent us the helper to lead us in all truth. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, for your authority over this hour, every room where people are speaking and talking and learning. We pray your authority, Holy Spirit, over the entire time that we're together. We want the glory of God to be known more. We want the kingdom of Jesus to expand. We want you to get honor through all this. We ask in Jesus' great name. Amen. Okay. All right, so a disclaimer of sorts. I know that there are people in the room. There's people from Memphis, where I live here, who've been living in community, and there's people in other places like the Wichita Brethren that are over here are beginning to do that and doing other ways. So this is just our story, uh, the story of my family um, and the people that have been doing this in, in our city for a little while. Um, this is my um, younger years. These are the people that I met when I was a first-year medical student at, at what a lot of people you know, Harvard is sort of known as the LSU of the North. That's the um, center. So LSU, Will Gunnels. Yep, LSU, shout out to the – usually I make a joke about how stupid the Louisiana people are just to try to – it's self-depreciating humor. I won't do that because there are other LSU people here. But All right, so we made this promise to each other. This is – we should have prayed against demons of technology, I think. Um We made a promise to each other when we were freshman medical students in 1986. Mm, This would be kind of hard to do without pictures. keep talking and hope it keeps going. Um, 1986 went to 1995 before we got the first clinic open. This is a satellite uh, city map of Memphis, the Mississippi River on the left, and over the subsequent 18 years, we've added additional clinics, including one that we opened two weeks ago, and those are all on the western side of the county, of Shelby County, and Memphis come in, Um, because that's where it happens in our city that most people live who lack access to primary care, where Crime statistics are the worst, and where educational attainment is the worst. And so those health centers are located in the places where primary care has not been available historically. This is the whole group of us, um, numbering almost 300 now, scattered at these seven healthcare clinic sites. And um, that's a big difference from when we started with just a few of us. And part of our ethos, and we didn't make this up, we learned this from people like Dr. John Perkins and um, our friends at Lawndale Christian Health Center and others, but We began, not at the beginning 18 years ago, but about 10 or 11 years ago, we began to move people. People began to move into the communities where we have health centers. And so this is, I just updated this. I went through our roster a night or two ago, and 75% of our physicians now live in the communities where we have health centers. And you understand, these are are low-income African-American neighborhoods. Um, Two-thirds of our mid-levels, PAs and nurse practitioners do, we're still working on the dentist. I think you all understand that, right, dentist? <laughs> all right. So this, just, again, briefly our story, and if you've heard me speak, you could do this part of the talk before, but that's the house I picked out for my lovely bride in 2002. And um, 
this is what happened to it over the next years. We sold our house in the suburbs and we moved and we've been living for 10, 10 years or so in really a great house. I hope you can admire it. The pictures are good there. The wraparound porch is beautiful. And um, that was really the entree probably to getting medical students and residents to begin getting involved in the neighborhood, meaning as a few of us physicians moved in, we invited CMDA students and others to come visit. And we have a regular meeting on my porch Wednesday nights. And everybody in that picture, I think, basically has also moved in. Um, the guy who's going to do the closing plenary, our mystery plenary speaker, was one of those guys as a, as a dental student, uh, came and first helped me do some coaching of kids in the neighborhood and hanging out on the porch, and that was sort of his entry along with some of his other family members who were already more involved. All right, and the standard tired joke I make here is some of you are clever enough to pick out my kid in this picture, right? <laughs> and this has been part of at least the Donlin's journey. Um, we, we began seven-ish years ago to put our kids, and we have a lot of them. We have seven children uh, from age 19 to 3, and the two youngest are here at the conference, if you see them running around, um, into the public school that is a couple blocks from our home. And so our kids have lived more than us even in this cross-cultural experience where they were a minority, and they learned the community in an in a even more profound way than we did. And just to add to the weirdness, um, this is how we do church. We've been planting house churches for the last decade or so, and there are now 10 or so house churches, and they're spread not just in this original neighborhood called Being Hampton, where my family lives, but now in multiple neighborhoods, because as we've expanded in clinics and as we've recruited more students and residents, people have taken the initiative to move to some of the other clinic neighborhoods where we have um, work going on. And so one way to describe the community that I'm talking to you about is being able to live and work and church in the same place. Not not too many of us get to do that, at least that hasn't been my experience. Okay, and from this milieu, um, it's the story that I've been telling at this conference for a number of years. The first time was a talk that I I made up the title, From the Hood to the Hindu Kush, and I've basically been doing that same talk for about seven years now in varying forms, but... That big idea is that people who will take risks and live in these cross-cultural environments in the United States, just by fact that they're doing it, they're learning skills that would be helpful to live cross-culturally in another place as medical missionaries or dental missionaries. And so, sorry, I went too fast. Every one of these people, but for the guy on the bottom right, also lived in the hoods with us in Binghampton and learned those skills and <laughs> learned to deal with fears and learned to deal with limited resources and all those same things. And have gone out. Okay, and three years ago, we're in the midst of the fourth year. We begin um, recruiting young medical students because we host more than 100 a year and we put them in guest houses and make them live in community with us at least for two weeks or four weeks. And so we began to work uh, on training residents three years ago. We're about to graduate our first class and recruit our fourth class. So this is some of them. And they're, um, but for one of those people in those pictures, from outside of Memphis from other places. Okay, so that's the setup for telling you a little bit about me. And now I want to tell you three stories. I hope we get through three stories. Um, All of these are absolutely true. There are a number of people from Memphis who can stand up and call BS if I say anything that's not really true. Um, And in retrospect, they're powerful. I'm not sure I understood them to be as powerful as when I first experienced them. But all right, so let's go with the first one. Um, 
This is Joe and the, the, the Joe and Seema Weaver. Okay, and some of you know them. If you don't, you should know. They're legendary. They're uh, Christ Community 001 people. Uh, Joe is from the holy land of Pennsylvania where Mennonites tread the ground and Christ- Christianity just springs up naturally, right? And Seema was born in Kerala and southern part of India but moved to the United States. And they met when they were doing an OB fellowship. They're both family doctors. They're doing an OB fellowship in Chicago, West Suburban. Joe was almost 40 at the point that they met, and he had long before decided he was never going to marry. And um, he fell in love with Seema when they were fellows. Fellowship's just a year. They began to look for jobs. Seema contacted, actually the CMDA placement service contacted me about Seema. And so I convinced her to come to Memphis to interview. And then I figured out it was a two-for-one deal, like there's a fiancé in, the, in the, all right? And so when Joe showed up, he's very cheap. Or he's very wise with money, however you want to describe it. But he wouldn't let me fly him from Chicago. He took the the city of New Orleans, the train that takes like 14 days to get from Chicago to New Orleans. And I went to pick him up at 5.30 in the morning. At that time, he had lost a tooth sometime in his youth playing some sport or something or falling off a tractor on his dad's farm or something. And when I met him, he was just putting his false tooth back into place which he eventually, when he got a salary as a doctor, he got his teeth fixed. But So we convinced them to move is the, is the thing from Chicago. And Joe did in Memphis what he'd done in Chicago. He bought a house in Chicago near the hospital near West Suburban. So he moved to Memphis, and he bought a house in the hood at the clinic that he and I both worked at. And this woman who pledged to marry him and loved him didn't know any better. So um, Joe is a great guy. He taught me how to cast people and just some pictures so you can kind of get a feel. This is the health center that he and I worked at. He began this tradition. Again, I don't know where he got it, but he celebrates the feasts of the Old Testament. So at one point he built booths next to his house in this lot. And people, we were supposed to stay there outdoors for days, which of course we didn't do that. But, but he started Passover and Seder feasts. And for, I don't know, Jessica, what, a dozen years now? We have awesome Seder feasts. We slaughter lambs. All right, we'll go to the butcher and get a lamb. But um, this is my living room, and we just, the neighbors come, and Joe introduced this to our family, and there's lots of great Seder stories and how Joe tricked my oldest son to eat horseradish and burned his mouth and all kinds of things. Okay, that's part of Joe's legacy. And then they went on two separate turns while they were with us to India, different parts of India. So this is the Weirs at one of their sites and a place called Jagdishpur. All right, and this is not exactly the house that was next door to them because I'm going to tell you in the story, the house has been firebombed and it's gone now, but this is a similar house that was right next door to them. Okay, and they moved in not knowing that there was a smokehouse next door. The difference between a crack house and a smokehouse, some of you know, is that people live in a smokehouse. Crack houses are usually abandoned, but they could tell very quickly because of the traffic in and out of the neighborhood next door that there was economic activity happening, okay? And then they, they had a problem, and this is part of community. Like the crack dealers, Moe's, and I can't remember the other guy's now, name now. It was 11, 12 years ago. They were nice guys. Their dog, the Weaver's dog, got out, and Moe's went and found their Labrador retriever and brought it back. And when Seema planted flowers, the drug dealers complimented him. How I pre- he came to me at work, and he said, I don't know what to do. They're nice crack dealers, you know? <laughs> So 
they see this woman coming in and out of the house next door who's clearly third trimester pregnant. And they don't know exactly what to do. They're a little scared. They're new to the neighborhood. But finally, Joe gets his gumption up, and he goes out and introduces himself as a physician, invites her to come to get prenatal care at our clinic, which is less than a mile away, and makes this connection. He finds out her name's Teresa, that she's had other children that are not under care because of her addiction. And we begin to make connections to try to have the baby adopted into a Christian family. Because in our Christian community, even at that point, we had this culture of adoption. We had two families that were interested in potentially adopting this baby, knowing everything about the baby and the mom. Okay, so the Weavers go out of town as Teresa is 38, 39 weeks, and I'm the sucker on call for peds that weekend. I hear the story. She goes into the house next door, gets high, busts her water. They call 911. They race her down to our to the med, this hospital, the safety net hospital, and she precipitously delivers in the eval area before they can even get her back. And they call me to come see the baby. And the baby's beautiful. Seven-pound, four-ounce baby girl. Looked like a dream, even though obviously mom's cocaine screen was positive. And so I went in to see Teresa, who was coming down from being high and had her, her sheet over her head. And my job was to communicate with her that the baby was okay and to begin the process of getting the child adopted. She didn't really want to talk to me. And then an odd thing happened. A middle-aged African-American woman and a guy who was clearly her lackey walked in behind her into the room, and they were very keen to see the baby. And I, I, I've already shown you, that wasn't Teresa's actual picture, but Teresa's a white woman. And so I took him out and put him in front of the glass where they could see the baby, and I went back in. And to shorten the story, they had basically made a transaction. Dorothy had supplied cocaine to Teresa for a number of weeks, and she was going to assume care of the baby when it was born. So, Teresa, uh, Dorothy is the African-American woman, if I didn't say that. So Dorothy and I have to exchange blows, not blows, but swordplay effectively. And we finally back her off when we talk about the police background check that we have to do and the home visits. And they disappear long enough for us to get the kid in emergency care and get the baby out and to get the baby adopted. And this is her at nine years old. Her name is Mia. She, from time to time over the years, has come over in the empty grass lot now where the house was that has since been firebombed by a rival of some sort and plays in the grass. Um, this is the family that adopted Mia. Again, part of our community, a larger community in Memphis, and a family, one of those families, you probably know one like it, that cares for kids that have special needs and special issues. And All right, so the story goes on a little bit more. Not a month later, the Weavers were again away, and someone went to their house. I'm not on call this time, but someone went to their house and kicked in the back door and began to steal their stuff. And there's a guy... I'll tell you now that the house I showed you, the house my family I live in, is next door to the Weavers, although we weren't in yet. This story effectively convinced me that we needed to be in. But on the other side of me was Larry. Okay? And Larry is the greatest neighbor we ever had. Larry had been there for years. Larry only wears a shirt between November and February. Okay? (laughs) 
the first week our family moved in, the first month, there was this straight-line storm where the power went out for almost a week. And we were perfectly safe because Larry was on his porch with a police scanner, night vision goggles, and a number of weapons that could take. <laughs> True story. All right. So Larry sees something going on, and he's a good neighbor, and he runs and he scares the people off, two people who are in the house. They run out with the boom box, and this is your house, Becca. Becca lived there for a while. Um, their microwave oven and a camera. And the cops come, and they're dusting for prints. And Larry is such a good neighbor, he decides to get in his truck and look around the neighborhood for the vehicle he saw them escape in. And he finds it at this place that doesn't exist anymore, but did then, called the Beer Joint, just a few blocks away. He calls the cops, and they, they're morons. They've been taking pictures of each other with the camera, and so they totally identify themselves. The Weavers got a notice a few months later because they were the victim of this crime that they could go to the court and see the arraignment and the trial for them. And one of the two assailants, robbers, thieves, was Teresa. Yeah. Okay. Which, this is Larry, and he, he died a month ago of small cell lung cancer. Um, I wish I had a better picture of him. He was a great neighbor. Um, Larry Perry. His wife is now a widow, and the house churches are rallying around her. These are all pieces of community. I hope you're hearing it. All right, so... Here's this deal, like, oh, my gosh, we helped this mother give this child into this family and rescue this baby, but no good deed goes unpunished because then she turns around and robs us. And for years I thought, this is kind of the deal. You live this way and you take the bad with the good. But the story's not over. This is Teresa. After she moved to Tulsa and other Christian people that we know connected with her, and she got clean and she got saved and now she has a relationship with Mia and her other children and she's married oh I don't think clapping apparently makes the computer mess up I've got another picture of Southeast Christian Church wants me to connect with their internet maybe that's the problem ideas okay there's the picture of Mia in the middle with her birth mother and her adoptive mother Okay, so a pause at the end of story number one at 422. Um, look at all the pieces of community that happened here. Look at the power of community to do. Is there anything more worthy than um, the redemption of a child? 
the, the rescuing by the power of Jesus people from addictions. Everything that happened in that story, the only way it happens is if Joe and Seema move into that neighborhood. That's the only way I get in the story. That's the only way the, the adoptive family and the mother meet. And I mean, all of these things happened. Larry, the amazing neighbor who was there before we got there, the connections that happened because of community, because of taking the chances to do that. That's, that happened, and I thought, I'm going to do the most courageous thing I've ever done in my life. I'm going to ask my wife if we can move into the neighborhood. All right, story number two. This is Heidi. Heidi is from another part of the world where Christians spring from the earth, and that's the upper Midwest. She's from a place called Holland, Michigan. Okay. She didn't go to Hope, for all you Hopesters. She didn't go to Calvin either. She went to Taylor, which, as I understand it, is Christians springing up in a cornfield or something like that. Okay. Vanderbilt for graduate school to get a master's degree so she could be a nurse practitioner, and then she came to Memphis. And the truth is, because she had this pedigree and this experience, at first she moved into what we call Mud Island. And there's other people in this room, when they moved to Memphis, they moved to Mud Island. Dr. Euler, for instance, back there. This is where all the cool people move, right? Um, If you're going to be a resident or a medical student in Memphis, this is where all the beautiful people are. This is where you can run next to the river. This is where you can work out. This is where you can meet girls or boys, whatever you're interested in meeting. Um, So Heidi lived there because that was the wise thing to do, and we began to try to lure her into the neighborhood. In fact, the house immediately across from the crack house I described in the earlier story was open and available. So um, she did. She did that. She moved. I I can't remember how long. She was in Memphis for five years total. Probably in the second year she moved. Um, This is to remind me that Heidi had her mind made up. She was going to be a missionary. She was going to go to Africa, she thought. And she wasn't going to put up with any boys. And there were plenty of boys who made a run at her. She wasn't going to put up with any boys who weren't ready to do exactly what she wanted to do. So she gave many a young man the Heisman. Okay. She worked at our health center in the same, the same health center that Joe and I worked at and the same health center in her neighborhood. She got involved in our house churches also. She um, began to go on some of our short-term trips. So these are pictures I found over this week when we were in Uzbekistan at one point and a couple of times in another country in that same region that's the first alphabetically listed country in the world. We're recording, but... Go through it, A, B, C, A. It's an A. All right, never mind. Um, the picture on the right probably gave you a clue. Okay. She got further insight into what it meant to be involved in this kind of work by being involved with people from our community who did it. And um, there's another ministry in our neighborhood in Binghampton run by the guy there on the left. His name is Soup Campbell, Roy Campbell. Um, and one of these young men who had an interest in her was discipled by Roy Campbell. He was, in fact, his right-hand man, one of his strongest leaders. And for a time, it looked like there was no chance for this guy, Damon is his name, to win the heart of Heidi because of her football approach that I described to you earlier. But somehow it worked out. One morning she woke up and she was in love with him. He woke up earlier than that and decided he had to go to Africa no matter what. So um, they got together, and there they are. And they were involved in these two ministries that are sister ministries in our neighborhood. And they lived, although in different parts of the community, in, this, in the community with us. And they got married. 
Okay, and that's a really communal thing. Do you know what I mean by that? That's a sacramental communal thing. Uh, this next picture is just four or five examples. I love this. All these young people who are married in Memphis, they're not from Memphis. I don't know how I got married. My mother-in-law wouldn't have pulled, gone for that. You know, like you're supposed to marry in the place where, you're, where the bride is from. But over and over again, we've had these young people who love the community and the people in the city so that they marry. So there's, that's Jessica up there on the top left. I just got an invitation yesterday from Alex Q and his wife, neither of whom are from Memphis. They're going to marry in Memphis at our zoo. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So, and they procreated, the Remagalas did, repeatedly, actually. This is one of the early pictures. But they began to move forward with the plans that Heidi had, had and Damon now also had. And they, some things, some bumps in the road, they, temp, they adopted a kid who was a refugee. He's no kid. He's, he's the biggest, scariest, muscliest guy I know, I think. He's in my house, George. Johnny's his name. He could, if you just bend his arm, if your head was near, it would be crushed. He's just, he's just, but he was, before his conversion, he was a, he was a hellion. He was involved in selling drugs, and he was in danger. He was almost killed a couple of times before the collective work of Christian people in our community got to him. And really, the Holy Spirit answered our prayers and convicted him of sin. He's had a very, very dramatic turnaround because of people loving him in the community. All right, so again, we're recording, so we don't want to say too much, but this is the place that they chose, which for my money is one of the toughest people groups around. And they've already been there five years, close to six. All right, and they drew the rest of us into it. So in a moment, I'm going to have Becca, who's here with us, and that's Becca on the left with some patients in our health center, but that's also Becca up on the top right in the country next door to the country that we're not saying, involved in ministry and using health care as a means to reach people. And the community that spawned these two and supported these two and helped them go has been sending our resources to them and helping keep the same community going in that place. All right, and it's happening. There are now hundreds, still less than a thousand believers from this people group. But there are now third-generation people associated with this work that Becca, who's about to come talk with us, um, have been involved with. Third-generation meaning someone from the West speaks the truth and tells their story, tells the story, and those people believe it. And those people go tell people from their people group who believe it. And those people go tell their other people from their people group who believe it. And so there are churches and disciples in this culture now that there were hardly ever before in the past. All right, so community, again, community is what helped form both of these people, these young people. Community is what helped form their relationship with each other and helped them in the preparation for the work. They weren't just going from the plans they made, and I'm going to talk to you about that in just a few minutes. They were doing it in the midst of the body of Jesus, and they functioned as a part, parts of Jesus, and they're still doing that. Right. So, my friend Becca, who is also was my next door neighbor and lived in the house where the Weavers lived for a time, 
is back. Come on up, Becca. For just um, after two plus years on that team in that place, and I asked her, I totally put her on the spot earlier this week when she came back, to talk a little bit about what community meant in the preparation for her work. Yeah, We've got a double mic. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've lived next door to Rick for what four hit Rick and his family for about four years and um, I'm from Nebraska from um, a farm girl from Nebraska and so moving to Memphis was a huge change for me. And I think um, as in preparation, just being in community with people Rick was talking about um, living, working, churching together. That was huge because we started um, as we went to as I went to Africa, your community only got smaller. I went from a community where we had four four house churches to a community where there's eight of us, um, and just learning how to live and work together to love each other um, was huge for me. I think one of the the main things is learning how to show grace when you're in a small community. You have to show grace to each other. You have to learn how to live with each other. Um, you have to learn how to um, care for each other. Uh, somebody told me, and I think this is really true, one of the long-term workers over there told me, you have to learn how to love your coworkers, your teammates, like they're your own children. You have to love them. You're gonna, they're going to irritate you. They're going to get on your nerves. But you have to learn how to love them through that. And so examples like that that I started to learn in Memphis and have continued in Africa have have really been um, key lessons for me as I've as I lived and worked there. Thanks. Okay. Yeah. Beck will be here later if y'all want to talk to her some more about any of that. I hope this works now. Okay. Let's let's go to story number three. This this, this is the Patrick family. Are they here this weekend? They're not. Okay. So. Spiritual warfare of technology. All right. Becca, by the way, her, this is only the second time she's ever come to any of my Louisville talks, which we have this joke about. But the first time was, it might have been this room even. It wasn't. It was another room. All right. So she wandered in, and I gave the hood to the Hindu Kush talk, and that's how she started pestering me about how she wanted to come to Memphis. Yeah. Um, the Patricks are from South Carolina, yet another place where they've had Christians for some time now, um, at least a few, I think. Um, okay, a family doc, it's his wife, Tia, they have three kids, and where's the third? Okay, there's the third, sorry, yeah, okay. They've been in Memphis, what, two years, three years? Two years. Danny's back there. Okay. All right. So they moved into not Binghampton, but Orange Mound, because about three years ago, I told you we spread kind of like a like the influenza virus. We sneezed into another community, and we this in, this neighborhood has historically been African American. It was deeded to the African American community in the late 19th century. Um, 
the man, uh, there was a fairly affluent African-American guy named Dedrick, and he had some faux orange bushes, and his, it's got the name Orange Mound that way. Um, but it's a difficult neighborhood. It's, it's got a lot of pride to it, but it's a very difficult neighborhood. And so they moved there, and they got involved in ministry. Tia on the left, far left there is Joey's wife, and she and other people in this room, and there may be some of the people in that picture in this room now, have been involved um, doing ministry with women and men. And um, this is a picture, uh, I guess, a year ago or so of their house church. Is that right, Jay? You guys are still in that picture probably, huh? You aren't. Okay. So this is pre or post split? Pre-split, yeah. So this is the house church before it became two house churches, but you can see, um, just gives you a visual picture of that. All right, and I didn't ask Joey's permission to show a topless picture of him, but um, he's been involved in, in baptizing people. And this, again, this is a communal thing, right, baptism. And I showed the picture on the right, not because it has anything to do with Joey's story, but because that's if you're house churches and you don't own a, a church building, First of all, people can only get saved the times when Larry wears a shirt, or not wearing a shirt, right, where it's warm, because we, we put a liner in a pickup truck and we baptize people outdoors, and you can't do that like in February. You get saved and then you die or something. <laughs> um, so that's, that's how we do baptisms for our house churches. And um, so the, the reason I'm telling this story is because... Just like with the Weavers, they had criminal activity going on next to them, and it, it's happened probably to other people here in the room, and it's happened to Nathan Cook and Kim Cook a lot. Like across the street from the from the Patrick's house in Orange Mound, there was basically activities of a criminal gang, and there were late night parties, and there were filming rap videos, and there was finally a lot of violence, as in people shot up a lot, and somebody shot multiple times. I, I don't know if that person died or didn't die. Five shots didn't die. But it was, it, was, it was the Patrick's neighbor, someone that, that they talked to before but had not shared the gospel with them. And, and so as you're praying about this stuff, in our whole house church, we did Korean-style prayer for this. Like we, All the house churches get together one Sunday of the, of the month, the third Sunday month. We're all together in a common place, and we all stood up and prayed against this because there were bullets flying, and there were family and children, and it was, it was bad for everybody in the neighborhood. And it broke. And part of what happened is this guy, who was a big shot in the gang, who was a college football player before he got in trouble and came back to the neighborhood, got arrested. And so a lot of the bad stuff stopped happening because the big, big bad guy was in jail. Joey had a connection to him. He's his neighbor. And he had the Holy Spirit gnawing on him. I asked him about this a week ago or two. And he decided to go down and visit the guy at 201 Poplar. We live in the area code 901, but if you're in the 901, you don't want to go to 201 because that's the county jail, the city jail. And Joey had conviction from God that he needed to share the gospel with this guy. And so he went down there to do that, scared. And when he finally met with the guy, he'd already begun to repent. He'd already been trying to read the Bible, and it happened that he was at the same place in the Gospel of Mark that Joey was in the place of Gospel of Mark on the day that they met. So here's what I'm saying. I'm saying there's nothing as powerful as the grace of God working through the people of God 
the community of the body of God, of Jesus. To save the lives of children, to prepare missionaries, to stop criminal activity, to reach into the darkest places, to be part of redeeming humans and ourselves and communities. It has to be in community. It has to be together. It has to be understanding that there's only one head to the body, and that's Jesus, and the rest of us are parts. And we all need each other. And together, we're Jesus, and and together we have the power by the Holy Spirit to be part of redemption and transformation, the very power of the resurrection of Jesus amongst ourselves and amongst our neighbors. And guess what? It is such a mess. Okay, real community, and to the degree that we've approximated it, I'm I'm speaking from that degree, it's a mess. It's a mess because we're all so broken. We're all so messed up. And real community means you, the messed up person, go hang out with other messed up people and mess on each other. Right? Like, Like one of these... Nasty, muddy dogs that just comes in your house and just, and just splatters everywhere. That's what we are. We say we like community. So the book on the left, Community is Messy, it's really just about how messy it can be in your small group ministry in a church. Okay, I'm not talking about small group ministry in a church. I'm talking about people living together, sharing a lot of resources and risks and mission and purposes and committed to themselves to use Bible language in a covenantal agreement with each other. To, to an end, to be about the glory of God and the kingdom of Jesus together. And because we're so messed up, all of us, every one of us, we drive each other crazy. We're all wiser in our own eyes than we should be. We're all sure we're right. Even when we're right, we're not loving in the way we are right. So it's hard. The Formation and the maintenance of community itself is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. The second book, the one on the right, is much more helpful, even though it's a little difficult to get through. Chris Rice wrote about basically a white northeastern kid with an Ivy League sort of mindset who went to live in Jackson, Mississippi in the 1970s and 80s. And There's not much more different in the world than white and black people in the Deep South and the complications in history that go along with it. Maybe the only thing that compares with it would be, say, Gentiles and Jews in the first, second century, maybe. But the difficulties of community and living together and loving each other in that book, which I recommend to you, you all know this thing, right? So if you don't know it, it's, it's an optical illusion. If you look at it one way, it's an old woman. And if you look at it another way, it's a young woman. Is there anybody here who can only see the old woman? How about anybody who can only see the young woman? You can only see the young woman. The rest of you all have powers to see both. Yes? Okay. It's going to ruin my illustration. Um, this is... This is what I've learned in community. 
this is my, I like this part. I wish we had more time where people are like, no, no, it's her nose. It's her nose. Okay. Yes. All right. So this does help my illustration because in community you learn that people can look at exactly the same objective information and draw absolutely different conclusions about it. Okay. And it's so complete. If, if all you can see is the old lady, if someone's saying, don't you see the young lady and don't you see the feather on her head? Like to you, that's nonsense. You can't see it. And particularly regarding race in the city where I live in, we look at the exact same objective, what we think is objective stuff, and we come to very, very different conclusions. And we're sure we're right. Community only happens, as Becca said, if there can be a measure of God-inspired humility, forbearance, and mostly love. And I hope that's what she meant by treating your teammates as your children. You love your children, right? You don't yell at your spank or otherwise put your team members in the corner. Um, but if, you're, if you stick with this, if you do it, and if there's only eight of you on the Horn of Africa, you don't have any choice. I guess your choice is you could leave. Then you have to learn these attributes. You have to pray for the Holy Spirit to put them in you. When you're absolutely sure you're right, you have to step to forbearance and love. You have to begin always understanding that you might not be right. That you might not be the final judge of reality. Almost through. Um, I'm going to tell you a caricature story, meaning this is not any one particular person or persons, but it is a caricature of a number of people I've seen over my 20-plus years of watching young Christian disciples. Okay? They go to a conference like the Global Missions Health Conference or Urbana or a conference uh, – a CCHF conference, and they hear an inspiring speaker talk to them about the need to go here or there, and they, they believe they've been stirred by the Holy Spirit, and they, they make a commitment, and then they begin to decide where they're going to go and what they're going to do. And they understand that behavior to be good, to be obeying the Bible and the truth, and to, to be a response to obedience of, of a call. But they do it in a peculiarly Western and American way, meaning they do it alone. They do it as an individual with the presupposition that their decisions and their future and what they're going to do are entirely their own to make. They may pick their own place or country or people group that they're going to go to. They'll, they'll, they'll shop around for a mission sending agency that fits them or suits them well. They'll make decisions about where they live and what they do in their training in line with what they think looks like the best course for them to go with little or no counsel from anyone else. I've seen more than a couple of birds pick churches based solely on whether they thought they could get more or less financial support in those settings. We are 
It is the air that we breathe from the, from the very Garden of Eden to don't tread on me, no taxation without representation. Our whole national, national ethos is a big middle finger extended towards authority. Even in the service of the king, we default, many of us, to individualism, into thinking what's my deal, not what's the deal. What's, when I say the alternative, again, being Jesus Christ is the head of his body and we're a part and we only function fully and effectively when we're in the body. All right, so I've designed a test. This is the Donlin individualism screening test. Okay, it's only going to take a minute. Some of you have already taken it. Um, This has been verified by the American Individualism Association to be... All right, it's just a few questions. Number one, you don't have to answer out loud. Are there two or more people unrelated to you with whom you share intimate details of your life, including your sins? Number two, are you in a meaningful way under the spiritual authority of church elders or mentors? Not do they know who I am. Lastly, are your career plans connected to a larger vision that includes others? Knows the wrong answer for all three, right? All right. I'm saying this because the the collective story that I just told you has happened in different variations, different iterations a number of times. We've seen people wash out quickly overseas because they were largely by themselves. We've seen people not survive in these tough spots because they didn't avail themselves of the community, including the part about needing to be humble and submitting ourselves one to another and submitting ourselves to authority. Becca was too nervous up here to talk about it, and I pushed her too fast. But when we talked in my living room earlier this week, she talked about how important it was to have good leadership. When she, on her field. The difference between a team with good leadership and one without was night and day. We've got to have leaders and we've got to have followers. We've got to have a way to develop leaders. And it happens in community. exactly 4.50. Let me pray for us, and then we'll go out. Father, I pray that, again, by the power of the Holy Spirit, because of the resurrection of Jesus, you would um, speak the truth to us that you want us to hear, that um, whatever was true in what we talked about for the last hour, you would use it for your glory and, and for good. I pray for all of us that we would learn to submit ourselves first to you, Jesus, and then to each other and see ourselves as what we are, parts of your body, um, dependent upon each other, 
all of us necessary. You would teach us to be the part we are the best we can. And mostly, I pray for myself and for others that we would love. We learn to love and in humility and forbearance love our brothers and sisters. Pray, Jesus, in your great name. Amen. Thank you.